them even prepare like this document? Like what was your what was your game plan for this? Yeah, so I whipped out my actual physical components of Root. I got my two <laughs> decks here and I organized them in many ways. I organized <laughs> them by crafting cost. I organized them by suit. Um, I compared the two decks against each other. I counted out all the suits and made sure that the, what I knew was in common about the two decks and what was different about the two decks. True Detective Season 4, <laughs> Sam cracks the root decks. <laughs> like, I just imagine you have, like, red yarn connecting all these different themes that you're, like, posting these cards on the wall. Um, these are my two cheat sheets of just paper filled with notes on the decks. Only the decks. It's just two pieces of loose leaf paper with fairly organized scribblings on it. Yeah, they're cordoned off in certain sections. Although Sam also is smoking a cigarette and winding up a bunch of yarn, <laughs> potentially for uh, explaining the dice later on. I think <laughs> the woodland is a lie. <laughs> the forest is a simulation. <laughs> There's people controlling us all. <laughs> Uh, well, like, so the components of Root is what our episode is today, episode 103, where we are going to discuss the the things that come in the box, essentially, right? The physical components uh, that are faction agnostic, right? Things that are global for everybody in the game. No matter what faction you're playing, these rules kind of apply. Now, how you use those rules and how you prioritize these cards, that might be up to your faction and your personal playstyle. But for today, we're covering all the pieces in the game from as general a view as possible. Am I right on that? Yeah, if, if last couple episodes we were dipping our toes into the water, I'd say we're almost up to our knees here. But uh, with Root, being general is actually very hard. It's almost harder than being specific about the factions because this game is about the specific factions. Uh, so uh, <laughs> this is kind of a deep dive of general ideas. <laughs> How perplexing. Like, what episode are we going to actually start swimming? Like episode 100 or something? No, no. Come on, Jake. Come on. No, it'll be like... Ten. <laughs> no, I actually think it'll be soon. I don't know. We'll, we'll have to figure out the scheduling or whatever. But I, I think it's important that everybody has, like, a decent understanding of, like, all of the general things yeah. that can happen in a game. And then we'll get into those sweet faction guides. Yeah, it's just so easy to get, like, hyper-specific right away that uh, I, the, the goal of the podcast is to leave a little breadcrumb trail so that if you are new or interested in learning more about Root, you have, like, a kind of clear pathway to get to the kind of deeper, more specific discussions later on. Okay, do you want to start with this crazy rule of three uh, paragraph that we have here at the top, or would you like to move on to the real stuff? Yeah, here here goes another Sam DeRose conspiracy here, okay? <laughs> um, we, we were actually talking about this the other day, of how there's like this weird rule of three in Root, okay? And I have too many examples to name here, all right? <laughs> There's like three phases of a turn, right? Birdsong, daylight, and evening. There's three suits, mouse, rabbit, and fox. I know there's a wild one, and it's kind of a rule of three plus one, and we'll get into those. Uh, You're saying there's a caveat in the second example already? There's a, there's a caveat in the rule. It's like, all right, for those people who like study comedy or whatever, I think it's the same thing with the rule of three in comedy. Is it one, two, joke? Or is it one, two, three joke? And that's either the rule of three or three plus one. Okay? Okay? <laughs> yeah. For all those of you with doctorates in comedy or whatever, <laughs> you right. know what he's talking about. 
All right, here we go. We got three clearings that need to be ruled for dominance, three cards in our starting hand, three YA bases, three WA supporters, three warriors for martial law, three eerie warriors for the new roost ability, three cat actions, three corvid actions, three cat building types, three items uh, are damaged from the vagabond in full removal, three items are repaired by the ranger. Three items are refreshed every turn automatically for the Vagabond. Three available quests. And then there's some stretches in here, but three opponents. Wait, no. <laughs> A lot of these are stretches. Like, <laughs> All right, hold on, hold on. Three opponents, and that's like three plus one because it's three plus yourself, right? Sure. <laughs> you are your own enemy, really, in this game. The duchy has three tunnels, three citadels, and three markets, and it takes 30 victory points to win. Mic drop, rule of three, confirmed. <laughs> my counter pitch to this is that instead of a rule of three it should be a rule of 12 go okay. on <laughs> continue because it's like it's like three and four there's like stuff that comes in threes and there's stuff that comes in fours mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and i feel like the dice is the best example of how it's actually a rule of 12 instead of either three or four mm. the three is brought to life by the four <laughs> Yeah. Hold on, let four... me get my cork board full of yarn here. <laughs> I mean, there's four die faces, right? There's four factions in the game that you generally play with, although that's been broken recently by the expansion. Um, yeah, there's... How many clearings are there on a map? Twelve? Twelve. Four yes. of three suits, yeah. And the dice are literally D12s. Right. Right, it's kind of like four numbers on the die spread out three over times. a bunch of sides. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, yeah, I feel like it's sort of three brought to life by multiplying it by four. So like we like to ask with all conspiracy theories we come up with, what does this mean? <laughs> I just think it's kind of helpful to keep in mind that there's always this, uh, if there's four players and three of something, you know, that creates an instant tension in the game. So I think more than you know, this is not really going, this rule of three is not going to help you win a game necessarily, as it will just kind of help you understand the kind of system and the kind of limitations on the system. And okay. the scale of numbers that we're typically working with here. Absolutely. Right. Because there's, there's not usually like a hundred of anything in root. It's like the numbers are pretty small. They're usually less than 10. Well, that's, that's a really interesting and very important point, I would say, is that like, Every number really counts then, right? It's like when you moving two or one warrior to a clearing for a decisive action is a very important choice then if the numbers in general are lower. Whereas if they were in, you know, factors of five or ten, one or two warriors wouldn't make a difference. But in this case, it's very important. Yeah. And that, Jake, that's a great transition into our first component we're going to talk about, which is the warriors. All right. You know, warriors are probably one of the most straightforward components, right? They're just your little meeples that, uh, you know, count for rule and battle, and you move them across the board. It's how you control uh, the game of Root. It's how you assert your uh, aggression or dominance over uh, clearings. Um, and as a result, uh, you, you're going to want to know how many warriors to bring with you for a given situation. Now, obviously... Factions have specific abilities with warriors, where their warriors can do more with less or whatever it is. But it's important that we're kind of just general vanilla root faction. Um, 
we're we're talking about a three warrior threshold that is very important. Kyle, why is the three warrior threshold important? It's important to have three warriors basically to defend a building, essentially. Um, also, the presence of three warriors uh, triggers martial law, if you're thinking about the Woodland Alliance faction specifically, uh, which basically is just a, a little rule at the bottom of the Woodland Alliance faction board. It, it's going to cost an additional supporter to spread sympathy into a clearing where there's three or more warriors of a particular faction. So three is like a very important threshold there when you're fighting against the Woodland Alliance. But kind of beyond that, the dice go up to three. Like the most hits that uh, the dice will give you is three. So if you have three warriors plus a building, unless there's other additional hits going on or some kind of other chicanery, (laughs) uh, that building is protected. From one battle. From action. one battle, exactly. It requires your opponent to at least do two, and in that at least still do some heavy damage, right? You have to roll really well, exactly. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's a threshold. You know, It's not saying that any building is completely safe if you have three warriors, but that is a threshold to keep in mind. Uh, just off the top of my head, though, like, is there any situation? I mean, I know again, we were trying to stay general, but like, mm-hmm. because ambush only applies to defenders, like, it's safe to say that that three threshold is fairly safe, right? There's not a lot of um, other uh, game effects in the general components that could affect that threshold, right? I mean, it, it would it takes special rules to kind of like push that in one direction or the other. I mean, the Wither Alliance, again, is a great example here because their Guerrilla War ability, which says that they can take the higher die roll, even if they're defenders, means that they can actually get away with having fewer than three warriors protecting a base, oftentimes. Because the only way an opponent in that instance will ever deal three hits is if you roll a 3-3. Right, and then they're sacrificing a lot of their warriors at that point, which they may not even have any presence in the clearing at the end of that. Right, so having two warriors protecting a base, if you're the Woodland Alliance, that is kind of a key threshold, in my view. Uh, So instead of three, it's two for them, which is nice because they have fewer warriors than the other factions. And that faction, that like that number threshold is also like very good because so few factions have a lot of multiple battle actions in a turn, right? Like the cats can pull it off because of their action economy, but like the, the, the birds have to do it multiple times in the same clearing, which isn't always too, which isn't always easy to execute in your decree. The Woodland Alliance has like, has to use the uh, officer abilities, right? Yeah. And then the vagabond man, he wants to save all most of his, items to avoid that i would imagine yeah jake i think you're hitting it right on the head here at least in terms of when you force an opponent to make two battles that is costing them more than warriors which is their Mm -hmm. action economy Mm -hmm. and this is why uh the cats actually have a very limited action economy right they only have three actions unless they can sacrifice a bird card for extra actions that makes them taking time away from building up their own engine to go move and then battle and then if they have to battle again they can't even build this turn you know what i mean so um Mm -hmm. making it so uh, an opponent it's going to be annoying to come after you is one of the best strategies in root making it cost someone else's actions that is honestly uh, the key warfare you should be doing is action warfare Ooh. okay we're gonna put a pin in that because i feel that's gonna come up more right yeah (laughs) yes but sam 
Well, I I see that there's another kind of, uh, you know, wooden piece that looks a lot like a warrior, but there's only one of them mm-hmm. called a pawn. Mm. What's the difference between warriors and pawns? Well, um, just all the good stuff. Um, now, pawns, <laughs> are, it's particularly, I think only the Vagabond has a pawn at the moment. Um, and a, a pawn is, just isn't a warrior. So all the things that say, remove two warriors, or, um, you know, you have to rule a clearing with warriors. Pawns are ex- the exception to all those rules. Also, uh, when you remove a pawn, like with a, uh, a sympathy revolt or a corvid conspiracy bomb, something that uh, removes all enemy pieces in a clearing, uh, instead, the vagabond, which is the only pawn at the moment, um, damages three items instead of being removed because a pawn cannot be removed. Again, three. We see this three all over the place. <laughs> okay. It goes to the top. <laughs> so pawns are sort of the the only other piece that's made of wood, right? Yes. Uh, maybe ah, you a didn't make of... a wood spreadsheet, did you, Sam? <laughs> <laughs> you, sh- you took the time with all the cards, but you didn't factor in the materials. <laughs> All right, I'm just going to, off the top of my head, there is there are some wooden pieces that belong to maps. Right. Are there any that belong to other factions? I don't think so, I right? don't think so. Okay, Yeah, the cool. coffin's so, TTS only, right? Ra- that's right. <laughs> the raft and the pass tower are the only oh, right. two other wooden pieces I can think of. But I those are map correct. specific, so we'll right. talk about those in Map Town. Uh, well, then, beyond warriors and pawns, the other things we put in clearings are buildings and tokens. Let's start with buildings. Yeah, buildings contribute to rule, as whereas tokens don't. That is the first distinction, right? And they take up building slots, which we'll get into uh, in the map uh, portion of, of the component episode here. But uh, building slots are a resource in a clearing. There's only uh, anywhere between one and three uh, uh, building slots in a clearing. And so as a result, where you can place your buildings uh, is going to be limited. And some factions are going to care about that a lot more than others. That's right. And the other thing that all buildings have in common is you get a point for removing a building uh, in battle or otherwise. And this goes to one of the like global rules of root that uh, is super important to always keep in mind. And that's cardboard gives you points when you remove it. Mm-hmm. Is there a priority you should be giving to removing tokens versus buildings? It depends. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to be my favorite reply to a lot of questions today. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. But largely, I would say buildings tend to be a little more difficult to put down in a clearing. And so removing a building costs your opponent usually a little more than removing a token. But there are some tokens that are super powerful, and, and you got to keep that in mind. For instance, the Corvids, yeah. their plots are tokens, not buildings. But they do cost a warrior to put down and a whole turn to kind of become effective and flip over for points, etc. So those, I would say, are extremely valuable tokens. Whereas for, you know, the cats removing, like, one workshop, eh, it's, you know, they'll recover. <laughs> <laughs> you can't build uh, a building in a clearing if there's a opponent's building in there, right? Two buildings from different factions cannot exist in one space? Why, thank you for uh, asking that, Jake. They can coexist. Oh, okay. Yes, uh, you just have to meet the requirements for building that building, which is almost always you have to rule the clearing. So usually what happens is somebody comes in, builds a building, then somebody with more warriors comes in, 
It has enough warriors to rule that clearing, even though there's a building there from an opposing faction, and then build a, builds a building themselves. And you can definitely have tokens of different factions in there, too, because that's more of representative of, you know, not just structures, but what's going on thematically in there, too. Right, because this is a game, at its heart, about coexistence. <laughs> Just kidding, it's not. <laughs> but honestly, choosing when you're going to war and when you're coexisting is is the whole game. You know? yeah. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so should we talk about what we're fighting over? <laughs> the component yeah, that we all live inside of, which is the map? <laughs> yes, this is my favorite of the components, I think. This, and I think the dice are maybe number two, but I love the maps in Root. And before we get into the, like, real nitty-gritty, I just want to take a moment to appreciate uh, the art on all of the maps. Um, Kyle Farron, of course, is the artist who has done all of the root art from the beginning, and actually a ton of art for leader games in general. And I am just so tickled to see this artist, like, rise to prominence, because Kyle's work is so good. And so I've done a lot of like editing maps and stuff like that for the puzzle videos that I create. And it's actually given me the opportunity to like closely examine almost every inch of all the maps. And there's so many amazing, adorable details on everything. Go look at the lake map uh, if you haven't spent any time with it. It is the cutest thing in the world. And there's so many little different buildings everywhere. What's nice about it, which we've talked about in previous episodes, is the quaint aesthetic in a war scenario, right? Is like the map doesn't necessarily scream war to you at all. What what what's what brings war to it is all of the factions fighting over it, right? It's a place you necessarily want to live, uh, but not fight over. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we probably should have said up top, um, the components to this game are like really nice. <laughs> <They're> like <laughs> really cool. Um, the meeples look great. Everything looks good. I think, you know, I'm I'm worried about sifting through the complexity of everything, but I think just from a f- initial first perspective, this game's production is, like, insanely good, and the components are so fun. I just wanted to say that before got, getting into it. Absolutely. But it, the thing is, is when you look at the maps, what you are looking at is a big rectangle that's like a bird's eye view of a natural setting like a forest or you know a sort of tundra area mountain etc and from this top-down view you're looking at 12 clearings that are connected by little paths and have forest areas in between generally the goal for most factions that have a lot of troops a lot of meeples it's going to be to pack those clearings full of your warriors so you rule them so that you can gain points in one way or another if different factions will actually look at the map in totally different ways. Uh, the Within Alliance, for instance, is going to be looking at adjacent clearings and clearings that give you access to a lot of others, networked-type clearings, uh, whereas the Vagabond is going to be looking at those forest areas as well as clearings with ruins, which we'll talk about in a moment. The Lizard Cult is looking only at the multiple building slot clearings. <laughs> Why? Uh, uh, well, because uh, it's hard for the lizards. They need to get multiple gardens in the same suit. Um, so it's much easier to defend one clearing with multiple building slots than it is to defend two clearings, each with one building slot. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's talk more about these building slots. Yes. Uh, we, we just talked about building buildings in, in different clearings. How many building slots are in your average clearing? Uh, anywhere between one to three. 
that's not an average. One point five. <laughs> Great. Yeah, but so some clearings are more valuable for buildings than others. I think is like kind of the basic point. If it's an edge clearing with one building slot, that's going to be of limited value to factions that care about buildings. So, so but like, one of the isn't that also of a higher value to a faction that doesn't care about buildings because it's less fought over? Like, isn't it by its nature not being prioritized by your opponent a little bit more of a benefit to you to go grab it? Absolutely. This is part of the ecosystem of Root. If you imagine in your mind like a heat map uh, <laughs> with every faction's color on it and the sort of clearings that they frequent, mm -hmm. it's going to look a little different depending on the faction. The cats, for instance, are going to concentrate their presence in clearings with lots of building slots since that's how they score points. Uh, a different faction, the Woodland Alliance, or, you know, the birds, the birds, yeah. the moles, might prioritize clearings that are towards the edge, have only one building slot. So in that way, the map kind of self-balances or self-regulates, in a sense, or creates a nice mixing uh, of the factions for territory to compete over. Yeah, and uh, of note, uh, all maps except uh, the uh, mountain map have the exact same amount of building slots, and the mountain map has one extra. So, for those factions looking for a little extra edge, another extra little building slot, the mountain map is for you. Do you mean the total number of slots on the entire map is Correct. the same except for the mountain map, which has an additional? Yes. Oh, okay. Why? Well, <laughs> uh, I don't know if this is true, but uh, a listener, Garrick, Garrick S., uh, uh, wrote us here on our, on our Discord uh, feel free to join us at Good Time Society under the Woodland War Machine channel. He <laughs> nice says uh, that uh, a fun fact about the additional slot is it, it in all likelihood was an accident from an early draft of the map and then just got grandfathered in without anybody at leader noticing. Now, I can't confirm that. <laughs> Garrick is saying that they messed up, and I don't, I'm not going on the record and saying that, but if leader... I mean, if you, you are you're scoop, recording audio saying that. You are going I, very much on But I didn't say it. Well, oh, you repeated it, so... Kind of, though. I didn't say it, though, kind of. You are spreading this rumor further without any body of evidence. Hey, I just think that rumors are fun, and that's what the <laughs> podcast is for. <laughs> also, Garrick isn't just a listener. He is also the, one of the organizers of the Root Tournament, like, on uh, Woodland Warriors, right? Yeah, absolutely. Garrick is yeah. one of the best Root players I know and a great member of the community. Uh, he's, I think, a mod on Woodland Warriors and, yeah, organized the Winter Tournament. A, very a important board game person. streamer as well. I'll put a link to his Twitch in our show description. Check him out. So back to maps, though. We so we have four types. We have the autumn, the winter, the lake, the mountain. The autumn being the, the base map from the base game, the most vanilla, the one with the fixed factions in each clearing that are printed on the board. On the flip side of that is the winter map, right? Mm-hmm. And that's only different largely in that the um, clearings are potentially randomized. Yeah, I mean, the clearing layout is different in all these maps, right? So it's not just like a carbon copy with a different theme. Okay. But, but um, yeah, because there's a whole northern part of the winter map where all the clearings are just connected to each other, and then the corners kind of branch out. So oh. it can, creates a little bit more isolated situation. Okay. Whereas in the autumn map, on the base map, things are a little more interconnected through the middle. There's kind of three central clearings, one of each suit, that is a little more prominent and keeps all the other edge clearings connected. So there, there's a little 
you have a little more freedom of movement on the autumn map typically than you do on the winter map what does this mean from a general standpoint about the winter map then simply that there's less movement options or does, like does that also say like there's less locations for battle because troops have have to get further to get stuff done right there are clearings on the winter map that that function as choke points mm -hmm. essentially okay if you, you can get trapped in a small cluster of clearings very easily on the winter map which can be extremely damaging for a faction like the Eerie. Uh, so what, one thing about the winter map that I really enjoy is its layout, like the way the paths connect all the clearings, forces some different strategic considerations. Prioritizing mobility on the winter map early on in the game can lead you to a better end game. Whereas on the autumn map, sometimes it's about like planting your flag in a clearing and holding onto it. How heavily do you both change your strategy based on the map? Like, or, like when you go into a, a game, you're. I feel like we're generally thinking about the other factions at the table more than like how that'll apply to the map. Like, I think the exception maybe is the mountain map because of the pass and because of the ability to reveal tunnels for points. Like, is this a huge consideration in your opening choices? Is what map you're on? In opening choices, I think it does matter. Okay. Yeah. Um, but in terms of overall strategy, it's very, it's about getting the faction's engine online, right, essentially, right. in whatever way you choose to do that. Mm -hmm. And so that type of consideration doesn't change that much. Okay. But there's key clearings, there's kind of imperatives that are based in the maps uh, to be aware of, I think. Quick question, too. All of these have waterways of some sort that can be utilized by the otters, right? And I know that's specific, but it's general in the fact that if otters are in your game, it opens up new avenues of movement for everybody, p potentially. Yeah, also a card in the Exiles and Partisans deck gives you that same ability to treat rivers as paths. Um, so, yeah, having the otters in a game, that uh, is going to change the map inherently because there are now more pathways. You can use the rivers as paths. Uh, if you pay the otters or craft that card, uh, that allows that map to have a whole new shape. There's a document maintained by the Woodland Warriors kind of community uh, that gives data, like spreadsheet data, about which factions do well and do poorly on each given map. What? Really? Yeah. So I think it's actually possible to slightly rank the... Uh, give me that sweet uh, you link, know, how I'll, I'll hit you with it, yeah. What is this based off of? Is there the uh, performance of the factions in the tournament rankings and such based on the maps? I think uh, a lot of games are collected. So I think you have to take that data with like, well, who knows if that was a new player playing that right. faction? Who knows right. what what were the circumstances at the table? So I think like with all statistics with things, you just got to take it with a grain of salt. But um, it certainly shows kind of general trends. And okay. I think you can use your eye test to kind of tell what makes sense to you and what doesn't. The old eye test. Eesh. And how many eyes do we have? Three. <laughs> uh, very interesting. Yeah, so they, they have, they're tracking stuff in like the hundreds of wins. Yeah. Like all of these four-player statistics for each faction are at least above 100 wins calculated. That's so fascinating. Interesting. Red Win rate against factions, win rate by map. Hmm. 
Yeah, and when we get into the faction guides, we'll talk about what uh, faction map combo works best for that given faction or whatever. But uh, I think we're just talking generally, what does this map bring to the table? Um, one thing that uh, we didn't touch on in the winter map, the river does separate the forests, which it doesn't in the autumn map. That's just a thing that's only really going to affect the Vagabond. And the Vagabond has some interesting slip options in that winter map as well, given that big, huge forest in the north. It bisects the entire map? Right. Uh, two forests, uh, or, you know, a forest area that is separated by a river, those are two separate forest areas. Can The Vagabond can slip over the river. You'd, you'd have to start in your turn in the forest and, you'd slip. and slip across the river into that forest it, it would take a full so you can movement, okay, okay so to be clear you can the the vagabond can get across the river no problem it's just not a shared it's two different zones within the forest that's right I yes understand. yeah sorry okay. that was confusing I, yeah no no it's okay i well i mean it, <laughs> that's the thing is like it's not that it, it's confusing it's like it's not specific uh, it's very specific within the rules, so we we have to we have to outline that right. And like as we've noted, there's so many uh, very uh, well, lack of a better term. There's a very specific nature to each of these boards and each of these rulings. So I think it's okay to have to clarify that. All right, let's keep moving on with the expansion maps here. First, let's talk about the lake map. Another one with some choke points to be sure. But the notable thing about the lake map, instead of a river. You guys guessed it. There's a lake, okay? <laughs> um, and there are four clearings that the lake connects to, just like in uh, all the other maps. There are four clearings which the river runs through, except for the mountain map, which has three. Um, but the lake map has a little raft that you are allowed to take from one coastal clearing to another. Uh, if you're in the clearing with the raft, you can move your warriors on the raft to another coastal clearing, and you get to draw a card. So that is the big, like, fun... Uh, a twist with the lake map. What a cool bonus ability to draw a card. Like, that's one of the few things in Root that I've seen that, like, gives a bonus to anybody who can use it kind of situation from the expansions. Mm -hmm. Most of the changes are, like, very faction-specific. Uh, well, well, the one mechanic that does give a bonus to all the factions who can use it is... The tower in the pass well, right, yeah. on the mountain map. Yes, exactly. That's the, the this. I feel like they did it with this map. They made these maps a little bit not just movement dynamic, but game dynamic. Right? Was this from the underworld expansion or from the river? Okay, underworld. Yeah, and I think we'll see how they've kind of influenced themselves in the latest expansion, the Marauder expansion. There's this thing called landmarks that kind of feel similar to maybe the pass and the raft where uh, there are specific pieces that you put in clearings that give that clearing an ability for anyone to use. So um, I think there's more of this to come, which is exciting because these maps are, are super fun because of these things. But in terms of the structure of the lake map, um, the thing we should talk about is similar to the winter map, it has uh, choke point clearings that can easily cause factions to get trapped in one area uh, of the map, which could be good or bad, depending on the faction. Yeah, I feel like it's really easy to get trapped, like, especially in an otterless game. Like, you can get cornered, and if the raft goes away, then your options really get shut down. I feel like the birds would kind of struggle here for that reason, right? Yeah, that's a good observation, Jake. I think the Eerie probably has the hardest time on the lake map uh, because they just prioritize movement so much. It's mm -hmm. so important to them. Mm -hmm. Whereas like lizards uh, are great on the lake map because I wasn't moving anyway. You know? Yeah. 
Yeah, well, I pl I got to play otters on this map, and that was I. <laughs> that was fun. I got to use the raft way too often, which which was good because it meant people weren't also using it because I was putting it in suboptimal places. But I was always getting a card for that as well. Right. Yeah. All right. The mountain map, as Kyle mentioned, also adds some point options, which I think I think the mountain map might be my favorite map. Um, I love the fact that there is a whole clearing called the pass that you simply gain a point for holding it. I think King of the Hills, we need more of that in this game. Yeah, it, it certainly uh, it promotes player interaction and fighting over key clearings. I love that. Um, as well as there's extra points uh, by discarding cards, you can remove these, uh, what are they called, Kyle? Pathways? Pathways. Yeah, you can remove these, uh, you know, pathway obstructions essentially, and uh, r reveal a new path. And because that's a piece of cardboard, you get a point. Yeah, that's a very cool option to this as well. Because once again, it not only changes the game, it changes the map. And the fun thing to note when looking at the mountain map is that the only passage from east to west is the pass when the when you start the game. That's the only way to get between sides, between halves on the mountain map. You need to open up those pathways in order to create additional oh, holy uh, routes. Yeah. I never noticed that. Yeah, it's actually very neatly kind of bisected in that way when you start and becomes more interconnected as people open up those paths. And it can actually be a little bit of a mini game inside of a mountain map game, like what order you open up the paths in, like right. which are of immediate strategic value versus which are, I mean, if you're the cats and you start with cats in a bunch of different clearings, you can actually open up a path between two of your opponents early in the game to create some immediate tension between mm. them. Oh my goodness. I love that idea. Now all I want to do is play the cats on this map. Uh, cats I mean, on the mountain map is is super fun. We actually just played a game uh, with some uh, people on the Discord, Just10. Uh, he's my guy. He, he was playing the crows <laughs> on the mountain map. And we'll get into this. I, I want to talk about the, this game for a couple of reasons when it comes to crafting. But um, I was cats on the mountain map, and I couldn't slow down. I was doing so well. <laughs> um, and I, that map is just, it has so many extra points which the cats could use. And I want to just say that the cats toolkit is specifically well suited for that because there's lots of factions that could use an extra couple points, the lizards, uh, maybe the molds. But the fact that the, the mountain map prioritizes holding a clearing, which cats are good at, lizards can do, but they'd rather not have the heat and moles could deal with. Um, but the extra pathways, have having to discard a card, cats don't care. You know, unless it's a bird card, they want to save those. And yeah, a couple cards for overwork. But cats tend to have extra cards. Uh, and they don't need them as badly as the moles or the lizards who rely on those cards for their actions. But like to Kyle's point, like this strategy is really amazing when it relies on having... Uh a presence on either side of the of the passage and the cats start with presence virtually everywhere yep. so like your your options at the beginning are as are a multitude right you have a multitude of options at the beginning and compared to everybody else who also are saving their cards as much as possible for what they can do with them whereas your your engine's already built and you're just trying to make it grow yeah, and the nice thing with the cats, too, is they, they can afford to discard cards relatively early in the game, whereas some factions need time to build up their 
you know, engine. And then they'll have some extra cards in hand. Like the Eerie is a good example. Usually they spend their cards to, you know, putting it in the decree. Uh, and, and they don't have anything left over to open up those paths with. The thing about the paths, the other kind of mini game buried in that mechanic is that there's only six of them on the mountain map. So that's six extra points sitting on the map waiting for people to take home. And part of that strategy of opening up paths far away from the cat's starting position is that they actually deny that point to an opponent who only has presence nearby. So you're sort of trying to starve your opponents as much as you are trying to make them uh, entangle with each other. God, it's the most cat-like strategy I've ever heard. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So let's talk about ruins in that space then. Yeah, ruins are laid out a little differently. Autumn map and winter map are fairly friendly uh, to the Vagabond. But I think it's the lake map that uh, makes things a little bit more difficult for them. Uh, Just the way the ruins are laid out. Um, Ruins are a thing that is in every game. Even if the Vagabond's not in it, you still put the ruin tokens on the ruin slots uh, and they take up building slots that no one can build unless the Vagabond or soon to be the Warlord uh, is in the game. I sort of like the idea that, uh, you know, there's this amount of building slots in the game, but that four of them at the very start are occupied by these ruin tokens. And thematically for me, I like this because it's it suggests that this forest is old is one thing that I like. You know, it has a history to it. Uh, there's probably already been some fighting, some warfare to create the ruins in the first place, you know? <laughs> so conflict is kind of baked into the topography uh, as much as, as it is the gameplay. And the ruins are just a very elegant way to kind of nod to that, I think. Strategy-wise, do they affect us if we're not playing the Vagabond? I mean, obviously, they, they cordon off one building slot, but like beyond that, is there anything we need to really consider? Um, I, well, there's nothing you can really do about it. So no, (laughs) (laughs) then like, I guess I'm glad we defined what they are, but is there anything we can say about it beyond that they exist? Like, is that something we should just save for the vagabond? Uh, it mainly is something for the vagabond to consider. Mm -hmm. Although like you mentioned, Sam, the warlord will have, have something to say about them as well in the future. Uh, the thing with the vagabond and the ruins is you want to be judicious about which ones you open up first. And in what order? If you open up a ruin right next to the keep, for example, that's a gift to the cats because they then can, if they have a sawmill there, build a recruiter. Or if they have a recruiter there, build a sawmill. Like It it gives the cats a lot of uh, advantage if you open up ruins close to their keep. It lets them build their engine quicker, right? Whereas exactly. any building it pretty much anywhere else, theoretically, you know, the birds will eventually get there. Right. And like the Alliance are always looking for spots, but like it really affects the cats because the cats can take immediate advantage. Right. The lizards as well could could benefit mm-hmm. quite a lot from having a ruins slot open up and become available for building a garden. Yeah. Uh, moles the lizards well, usually right? want to have at least two gardens in a clearing. Yeah. And for the moles as well. Any faction that can put multiple buildings in a clearing, that those guys are really going to care about the, the ruin and uncovery. Uh, also of note, Jake, there's no clearing where the ruins uh, is taking up the only building slot. It'll only augment a clearing's building slot. So it's never like there's no building slots in this right. clearing until the ruin goes. At least on any of the maps we have right now. Since they mainly have relevance to the Vagabond, 
we'll see warlord strategies develop as time goes on. We just can't really speak to that yet. But for the Vagabond, at least, it serves as a little bit of a track, like a you know roller coaster track that the Vagabond will tend to kind of follow or gravitate towards. So it, it makes planning those early turns as non-Vagabond factions a little bit easier to think about um, because you're like, oh, the Vagabond's probably going to be somewhere along this you know, line, this uh, central cluster of clearings. Does the Vagabond have much of a choice of, like, preference for their ruins? I feel like it's kind of prioritized based on where they've started, and, like, they want to go get exploring the ruins as quick as possible because that's how they get their items, right? There are more and less efficient movement kind of options for the Vagabond to explore clearings. And this is going to be unsatisfying, but it does depend on the class of the Vagabond, (laughs) etc., But in general, the Vagabond's going to want to grab at least two to three items in almost every game from the ruins. All right. Well, that's the physical components of the, you know, the tokens, the warriors, the pawns, and the maps. And now we have these huge decks of cards we got to talk about. Now, Sam, do we want to go in the deep dive of the decks today, or are we going to kind of stay still in the general realm up to our Uh, now? There is, this is all general, um, (laughs) but it is kind of a deep dive generally. And this is probably the most shared component of the game. So I think it makes them, it has the most commonalities between all the players. So I feel like this is a, uh, is good. What we're not going to do is go through each crafted improvement Mm -hmm. and tell you which faction it's good for. I'm not going to, we're going to do that in the faction guides. We might have a separate episode on the decks, but um, understanding the deck is one of the uh, best things you can do to get to your next level of play. All right. Well, the now, deck- Jake, you said they were big decks of cards, and they are not. They are actually 54 cards, which is the same as a standard deck of playing cards. Uh, Kyle, <laughs> did you map out the root deck to a thing of playing cards one time? I did, yes. I, I mapped out both the base deck and the ENP deck onto a standard deck of playing cards. Uh, if you include the two jokers and it's so funny cause I just sort of did that one day because I was thinking about, um, you know, like preparing for a disaster. And one of the things they always tell you to have in your preparedness kit is like a deck of cards or like something fun to play. And so for me, obviously I thought like, Oh, well, if I'm going to live through a disaster, like I want to have root with me. <laughs> But obviously that's horrible because that's a huge box with like a bunch of stuff in it and it's not going to be easy to carry around in like a survival backpack. So what I did was I I said, okay, I can bring a deck of playing cards with me and a notebook and just create whatever tokens and stuff that I need. But the cards, I'm going to map each deck onto a set of playing cards and in Sharpie basically. <laughs> Uh, and then just use that in a survival situation with three other survivors that will soon become my mortal enemies. So when <laughs> the three remaining people in New York get together and Kyle's one of them and they bring their supplies and someone's got the water and like the iodine tablets and other people has rations and you have a deck of cards with Sharpies written on them about this cool woodland game you want to show them, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's an essential survival <laughs> skill to be uh, uh, good at root. I so just love that you were on like I, a how to disaster, disaster prepared this kick. You're like, well, how do I save root? <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I brought this deck of cards and a notebook and, and these audio cassette tapes of our podcast so that they can study <laughs> you while we them try to and survive. Cassette? 
That's They're too- more durable, Jake. They're more durable that way. Kyle, volunteer with this time that you have, okay? Go help people who need it, okay? Well, actually, it, it turns out that uh, I connected with somebody on the Discord after I did this because I just posted it randomly. I'm like, look at this dumb thing I, I did. Uh, and somebody was like, oh, my friend um, re- has like a set of like Braille cards that they can oh. read. Oh. And this is actually one way that we can play Root remotely is if if these things are mapped onto a standard sure, deck of sure. playing cards, like you can still use Braille and understand oh, what, that's what's up without having like all the text on there. I like that. Well, okay, back to what you said though, Sam. When I said big deck of cards, yeah, I guess fifty four isn't isn't large compared to some of these crazy games we play. But there, unlike a deck of cards, there are fewer duplicates. Right, uh, a deck of cards has really thirteen different cards in four different suits. There is like what fifty unique cards because there's multiple ambushes from each suit. Right. Yeah, so I got the whole breakdown here, Jake. <laughs> okay, okay. All right, so we got 54 cards. Now, a, a, a little anatomy of a card, right? A card has a suit. I'm going to call it its top suit, okay? And that is either mouse, rabbit, fox, or bird, okay? There are 13 mouse top-suited cards, 13 rabbit, 14 fox, and then 14 bird, okay? Um. In that deck of cards, there are going to be four dominance cards, right? Your alternative win condition. Uh, One mouse, one rabbit, one fox, and one bird, okay? The bird is the opposite corners one. Um, And there are five ambush cards, okay? One of each suit, mouse, rabbit, fox, and two birds. Oh, okay. okay. Two birds. that. There's only one of each suit. Okay, good good to know. Yep. Yeah, and uh, that's the first, uh, my tip in, in learning the deck is you don't have to count all the cards, but just count the ambushes. Yeah. Two birds and one of each suit. Yeah, so like before we like get further in this, I want to reiterate, like uh, of the components of the game, as, as Sam said, this is the one that's important to get familiar with. And at, at the beginning, like for those of you that are concentrating on the many things you have to concentrate on this ridiculous game, uh, starting to keep track of where the cards are and what's being played is helpful. And I love Sam's advice of like, Let's just start with the ambush ones because those are the reaction cards that people can play to ruin our plans, right? We can very rarely control well, – actually, we can't even control ambush, but we can very rarely control what other people do. So uh, this is the thing to at least be prepared for as much as you can. Exactly. Yeah, if you're going to count cards, counting the ambushes is really easy, and it's a good way to do a process of elimination if somebody even has an ambush. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've seen a couple played over the course of the game – and the discard pile hasn't been shuffled back into the main deck yet, uh, chances become less and less likely that people have ambushes the more that get played. Mm -hmm. So once you start to see those come out, uh, your freedom to attack goes up as well. Yeah, especially if, you know, if those two bird ambushes have been played and, like, a fox ambush has been played, well, now there's no ambushing in fox clearings. Can't happen until that reshuffle happens. So it's stuff like that that you can kind of keep in mind and use to your advantage, all right? So the the four dominance cards and the five ambush cards are the non or the nine non-craftable cards, okay? Every other card in the deck is going to have to be crafted. You're going to have to have uh, what I'm going to call a crafter or a crafting piece in particular clearings to use the rest of the cards in the deck, all right? Um, 20 of those cards are item cards, Okay, uh, these are the cards that have a little crafting cost on them. They give you an item and they give you points. 
okay? And all of the cards I just talked about, the four dominants, the five ambush, and the 20 item cards are identical between the two decks. There's the base deck and the Exiles and Partisans deck, and those uh, 29 cards are exactly the same. So the only difference between the Exiles and Partisans deck and the base deck are the 25 craftable improvement cards. On a ridiculously basic note, for uh, those of you that like maybe are still super new to the game and haven't gotten a lot of games in, uh, just remember that the base deck or the Exiles and Partisans deck may be played with. You don't do both, so you choose one or the other at the setup. Um, so we're, what we're saying is like all of these cards are unique, or are this are this. <laughs> uh, both decks have the same amount of these cards. The decks get different when we're talking about these other. Uh, cards that we're about to explain right yeah so i wanted to make sure that we all understood like what a root deck no matter what it looks like uh is based on um that those nine craftable cards the dominance and ambush and the 20 item cards are going to be the same okay all right so let's talk about the flavors of the two decks just uh for a sec here the base deck um is simple I would say that the effects of the cards are a little bit more straightforward. However, the crafting cost of most of the cards are a little bit more expensive than the Exiles and Partisans deck. Uh, yeah, a lot of the upgrades are going to cost two. That seems to be the like basic amount that an improvement is going to cost. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a couple that dip to one. There's a couple that go up to three. And then a couple even that go beyond that to four. And something that costs four to craft is pretty rare and that's just the one card right that's royal claim i believe it's the one card in all the decks that costs four yeah and, it, and it's just a very hard card to craft i think only the eerie dynasty i've ever seen pulled it pull it off and dragging that average crafting cost up for sure is the three most controversial cards in the base deck and that's the favor of cards these are the things that make the base deck infamous, and it makes tournament players allergic to it. <laughs> it's uh, the favor of the mice, favor of rabbits, and favor of foxes cards. They cost three of that suit to craft, so favor of the mice will cost three mouse crafters, crafting pieces. Uh, and it removes all enemy pieces from that suit's clearings on the map. It just deletes everybody from those clearings. <laughs> it's bananas. It's, it's so strong. <laughs> it it sucks. Um, <laughs> as soon as somebody crafts it, you're like, all right, you sh just win the game already. Well, so you know? here's my um, question about this. Because, like, I, I mean, I think on paper, yeah, it absolutely, it seems super overpowered. And in practice, it, it, it sounds like it is from everybody that I've heard. I guess for the sake of the discussion, though, my question is, like, how easy is it to get that done? And, like, is it always so situational that it's advantageous right because i feel like you have to really get three out of the four clearings is a tough order to do and if you have crafting pieces and all of those you kind of are dominating them anyway so you've you pro they probably have eliminated a lot of enemy presence in most of those places i guess in that fourth clearing that's that's where someone's really going to get hosed right yeah the intention is that it's a little bit win more because they're very expensive and because they have a unified cost of you know itself three times that's pretty tough to achieve for most factions. The only problem is that when you have a faction like the Vagabond, who has no skin in the game in terms of buildings or uh, warriors, who is able to sure. craft a favor of and just absolutely remove any advantage uh, of the other players. The Woodland Alliance as well, it's possible to craft the favor of cards. You know, it's not easy, but it's it's easier than most factions to do that. And since they, again, don't often have a large board presence... 
that can really, really radically uh, shift the game in their favor. I think the main thing that bugs me about the favors is the fact that some uh, factions get to craft later in their turn than others. Uh, The Woodland Alliance is a great example of they can spread their sympathy to the clearings necessary to now have the crafting pieces to do favor on that same turn. So whereas the cats have to build the workshops and we can all see, uh uh-oh, you've got three rabbit workshops. I know what's coming and I can do something about it on my turn. The Woodland Alliance can just go surprise (laughs) or the Vagabond can go whoops, you know, and all of a sudden everything explodes. So um, you should know that the favor cards are in there. And yeah, Kyle, you're right. Uh, A lot of those... uh, the average crafting cost is because of those cards. Also, Stand and Deliver is a three mouse cost card that doesn't need to be. Um, but needless to say, the, the base deck, although it's simple, it's also a little bit more harsh and expensive. So let's talk about the Exiles and Partisans deck. This came in the Underworld expansion. You can buy it at leadergames.com. Um, it is cheaper, and I would say the effects of it are way more interactive. Okay. Like, you get to borrow other factions' abilities, like we had talked about moving along the river or uh, converting meeples to your meeples like the lizards do. Um, uh, so there's... Uh, and generally regarded as the more fun deck to play with. Is that fair, Kyle? <laughs> oh, totally. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the thing that I also find very fun about the Exiles and Partisans deck is its theming, right? Because you have... The idea is you have these factions... Uh, have these outsiders that travel and visit the other factions and sort of teach them the powers of, you know, whichever one. If it's moving along the river like the otters do, you can imagine there's like, you know, somebody who was fired from the Riverfolk Company, like defecting to the lizards or something. Yeah, I'll show you uh, how to get it going. <laughs> <laughs> I'll show you how to swim. <laughs> um, awesome. I did a lot of deep dive on the deck and in particularly I wanted to look at the theme of of these cards uh uh of note lord of the board on youtube has a great series on the decks and kind of how they interact with theme and I I was able to kind of take that and expand upon it while looking at both of the decks here um so let's talk about and and for this I am talking about um the top suit of these cards Okay. So wait, why do you keep referencing it as top suit? And what is there a bottom suit? Yes. So the t- I keep calling it a top suit because on the bottom, there is often a crafting cost mm-hmm. that is represented by a suit, but these can be different. Okay. But it's not. But the suit of the card is still the suit of the card. It's always that top suit, right? The cost of to right. craft it, which is also, isn't it also located in the top right of cards? Or is it just the bottom left? It's in both. It is in both, right? Those yeah. are the same. But the, the classic example is a root T will always cost one mouse crafter to craft. Uh, but a root T card will come in multiple suits, multiple top suits. That's a classic yeah, you example. You can have a rabbit one. Uh, I've got a great example here. So <laughs> no, I, I understood what you said, but I don't understand why it's a classic example. Because <laughs> it's a root T. It's a classic <laughs> card. Here, 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 here's one. So, uh, and this, this is kind of a, a window into the theme of the different suits, mouse, rabbit, and fox, and bird to an extent. Um, the coins, right? They cost two rabbit crafters, but the, the mouse suited coins card is called investments. 
you know, showing how practical and, and cra- the crafting nature of the mice. Okay, <laughs> the fox suited coins is called protection racket, right? Highlighting how the fox, you know, maybe got those coins from somebody else. They're like more battle, more force oriented. And then the rabbit suited coins is called bake sale. <laughs> All right, showing the generosity and the helpfulness of the rabbits, okay? So that's all the same card. It does the same thing in the game. It just has a different title to let you know a little bit about the theme and a little bit behind the story of the exact woodland denizens you're going to be working with. Because in this game, uh, cards are kind of our resource. And our resource in the in this woodland game of Might and Right is using... Each card represents like a different like woodland denizen. It's like, oh, this is a fox supporter. You know, that's why uh, the cards go into the supporters of the Woodland Alliance, because these are like creatures around the woodland. All these cards represent these 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 uh, denizens. Uh, So with the mice, generally, these are the crafty, studious and kind of a little sneaky. The mouse denizens are going to help you gain the most from crafting as well as provide you like a peek at other people's cards or maybe make you immune to certain cards or even uh, kind of steal the cards from their hands. So I'm thinking. Now, to be clear on this, uh, you're talking about mouse suited cards, not cards that require mouse clearings to craft. Uh, Yes, (laughs) though some of these are both. (laughs) Oh, well, wait, uh, because well, but if they're both, they are mouse cards, right? Yeah, mouse cards. With yeah, mouse so it's crafters. just mouse cards is what we're referring to. Yes. A good example would be Code Breakers from the base deck is a mouse card, a mouse suited card that costs one mouse crafting piece to craft. It lets you peek at your opponent's hand during the turn. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, so it kind of reinforces this idea that the mice are spies a little bit or they, they can use sort of subterfuge and stealthy tactics as opposed to for instance the foxes which tend to have a more overtly kind of like action aggressive posture about them yeah yeah and we see this uh throughout mice now i would say the mouse theme kind of changes most from base deck to exiles and partisans because in the base deck mouse is a lot more about the information and like scouting party makes you immune to ambushes um, but in the Exiles and Partisans deck, it's a lot more about item crafting. Things like Master Engravers and Marine Broker give you extra points or cards depending on other people crafting items or when you craft items. League of Adventurous Mice is a card where you can actually exhaust an item you've crafted in order to take a move or initiate a battle. So uh, you do see that the mice theme kind of shifts over the two decks more so than the other two suits. So... it. This is so interesting to me. Like I, I'm kind of just now, you know, mulling this topic over in my head, and it it makes me think of that like the mice are sort of artisans in the world of the Exiles and Partisans deck. Like they are the uh, the people who make goods in whatever world this is. But then with the foxes, that's more of the like military, like local militia kind of vibe. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you compete for the you know favor of the woodland that's sort of what the 30 victory points represents thematically right uh you're trying to sway and affect these different parts of society you know and, and i guess rabbits would kind of encapsulate that like cultural or like family relational community 
interchange kind of idea? Absolutely. The rabbits are your friends, okay? They not only are going to give you a bunch of points from crafting, which we'll, we could get into, but they're, the rabbits give you extra actions, okay? Uh, cards in the base deck like Cobbler, Better Burrow Bank, and Command Warren all allow you to either take an extra move, initiate an extra battle, or draw an extra card. That's just friendly, helpful stuff that doesn't cost you a thing. Uh, and also, like, uh, you know, a mouse boot is called travel gear, whereas a rabbit boot is called a visit to friends. <laughs> so another example of the rabbits are just having a good time. It's just a, they are the friendliest part of the woodland. <laughs> Uh, and then we get to our foxes here, the tough and tactical foxes about battling and maneuvering around the map. So uh, cards like Brutal Tactics and Armors in the base deck uh, and False Orders and Eerie Emigre in the Exiles and Partisans deck are all about either protecting yourself and dealing extra hits or commanding your forces or actually other people's forces around to make your battles that much more potent. Um uh, we kind of talked about how protection racket is the way they get coins. Also, I will say, uh, this is something I noticed in the quest deck. There are two fend off a bear quests, <laughs> one in mouse and one in rabbit. So that means the foxes don't need help fending off the bear. Because they used to work together. <laughs> Everybody needs help repairing a shed, though. <laughs> so, yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's helpful for understanding the theme of all these, and I guess when you're when you're drawing cards to know in general what they might provide you. I guess what does this mean in general for gameplay? Yeah, well, uh, the items are going to be a, a huge part of gameplay because they give you points, and points win the game. And it's of it's important to know how many points are available to you uh, with each different crafting suit, right? Uh, for instance. Uh, the mouse suit, you are able to craft uh, bags and tees, okay? The tees are two points, and there's two of those, so you can get four points from tees. And then the bags are each worth one point, but you can only craft two of those. For a total of six points, you can get from crafting items in mouse clearings. Uh, a little hint, though, that is all of those cards just cost one mouse crafter. So it's a potential of laying down one mouse crafter and getting six points, provided you're the first to craft all those things. Is your general decision-making when deciding to craft the point-based stuff really about can... Uh, is it convenient for me to craft it right now? Is that, like, your first and most considerate? Like, because when, when I play, I feel like I don't craft enough of the point-scoring items because... I see that it's only worth one point, and I'm like, I have too many other things to prioritize right now. I guess that depends on the faction for what I can do. I mean, every faction actually kind of crafts as, like, a free action on their turn. There's never an action economy requirement for crafting, but there is a crafting requirement, you know. But I might want to hold that card for other things, right? I don't know why. Uh, yeah, do you guys incentivize it based on the points that you have or uh, that it's one versus three or the fact that you might need that card for another thing? If I can use the card for something else and I can't craft it this turn, if I have to work to craft the card, I'll just use it for something else. Yeah. If I, if the points fall into my lap, I'm just crafting the card. But even That's if it's one point? Of, I, yeah, you don't want to hold on to stuff that you're going to hope craft too much. Um, if you have no crafting pieces in that suit and it costs two of that suit, like it's probably better to spend it for something else. So if you open your if you open a hand if at the beginning of the game, you see a three-point uh, item, you're like, I'm using that for something else, probably. At the very, very start of the game? Yeah. Probably. Okay. 
sometimes it's it's good to hang on to the coins. That's the three point item, sure. particularly because it's going to get you the most points for yeah. For crafting. Yeah. I know it. I know it definitely. We're talking situationally. It does depend, but like in general, if yeah. you're going to prioritize that, in general, I'm looking for is there a reason not to craft this? Because I'm going to try and craft it. Yeah. Because the other thing about crafting is it is denying your opponents the chance to get those points as well, similar to the pathways. And that's because there's two of every item in the game up top available at the beginning, right? There's two of some items. Uh, The ones that are singles are hammer and crossbow. crossbow. And I think that's it, right? All the other ones are double? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and we'll get into those. Those are both fox crafters, so we're we're gonna get there in one sec. We're on to rabbit crafters now, um, and with rabbits, this is where you get your coins. Okay, it costs two rabbit crafters to get the coins, and there's two coins for three points each, so that's six points. And then boots, there are four boots, but you can only craft two for one point each, so a total of eight. So you can get six points in mouse, you can get eight points in rabbit, but that does require two rabbit crafters as opposed to mouse only requires one. (laughs) Uh, And then uh, fox is where you get the swords, the crossbow, and the anvil. Now crossbow and anvil, uh, there's only one of each of those items. And actually anvil, I believe, let me check my notes. Yes, anvil, there's only one card in the whole 54 card deck that has it. A lot of, like, the boots and the bags each have four cards in there, even though there's only two available to craft. But the anvil is the one card that has a one-to-one ratio with the items, because there's two crossbows. Um, So, uh, in terms of holding out hope for those last little crafting points, you gotta understand that the anvil is the rarest one. It's a one fox crafter for two points. That's one that if I get it in my hand, I will hold on to, to craft. Because letting it go into the discard pile can sometimes mean giving your opponents two points. And it's such an easy, it's such a low bar for crafting. It's the T of foxes. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, like, I guess the purpose in thinking about this right now, because I'm trying to figure it out from a strategic standpoint, right, is that uh, you are, you you if you're looking to get extra points towards the end game and how do I do it, knowing what's potentially in the deck is helpful, right? Whereas like you see what you, what clearings you uh, have your requisite buildings or whatever, depending on your faction that you can craft with. And so it's like, well, if I draw these cards, this might give me an edge, right? Is that what we're talking about? Yeah. And I think like just setting up the game, like especially if you're setting up for somebody else, I think about the cats, right? If a new player is playing the cats and they don't know what to do, my biggest advice is just throw that workshop in a mouse clearing. Because as we'll get to my first little tidbit here, in the base deck, a single mouse crafter will allow you to craft 11 of the 45 craftable cards. Right? Hmm. So, And then you add the nine cards that you could do, which is the dominance and the ambushes. That's 20 of the 54 cards that you have access to just from that from setup. Right, you just put you have to put a, a workshop in a clearing. It might as well be mouse, unless you're specifically going for those rabbit powers in the coins. In which case, you throw that in rabbit, and you're going to build one later. But if it, if you want to set it and forget it, strategy for the base deck, it is one mouse crafter. This is a level that I haven't considered before. I, I, I would say, I, I mean, as much as I knew to be familiar with the deck and I started learning the cards and what each of them did, uh, I didn't think of them in terms of what their suits did. I just thought about it was like this 
car does this and is this suit. So do you both take this into consideration when you look at your crafting pieces of like, well, this situation is going to require me to be more aggressive, so I'm going to look for fox clearing pieces? Not based necessarily on the cards in your hand. I mean, I know you consider the cards in your hand because that's going to be most important, but... That's the thing is that going for fox crafting pieces at all is its own sort of strategic avenue. Because foxes tend to be a little higher bar or higher barrier to get into, and there's fewer cards that will have an immediate impact on your position in fox, uh, usually it means you already have something in your hand that will craft mm-hmm. with foxes right, if right. you're going to put your crafting piece in a fox clearing. There's tons of exceptions to that and tons of reasons why you would just do it to get your engine online, for instance, with the, the Eerie. Yeah. But in terms of the cards by themselves, I'm in every game trying to go for mouse or rabbit before I go for fox. That's so fascinating. So because like the way I've always looked at it was, I mean, I like to think I have some foresight in terms of like planning for the future. But when I look at crafting, I'm like, what do I have that is craftable and I should get those things? I never think about what I will draw because as part of that part of that is because I'm unfamiliar with the deck, but I also don't think of it like I have any uh, choice in what I draw. Right? It's still pretty random. I don't know. That's interesting. And it could be a little bit about wrong footing your opponents as well. If you see that everybody's got one mouse crafter and someone's already crafted a bag, well, there's only one bag left. There's only a couple of T's. Like you see that the market's kind of being cornered on one suit. Perfect time to sort of branch into the other one. You know, start throwing down those rabbit crafters or foxes. And that also goes for the fact that, like, there's a finite amount of cards in the deck of each of those suits. So if you see multiple people uh, going for those clearings as crafting places, you know they're going to be playing cards that might not even just be uh, tied to items. Because there's exactly too. Right. Interesting. Yeah, this, Interesting. This does change a bit between the base deck and the Exiles and Partisans deck. For example, there's more than one cobblers in the base deck. So if somebody else crafts the cobblers to open up their movement options, you can still go for rabbit crafting pieces because there's another copy out there that you can craft. But with Exiles and Partisans, the, uh, it's a little more limited. There's more solo copies of upgrades. Okay. Yeah, especially the level two ones. Uh, I'm noticing Marine Broker, Master Engravers, Coffin Makers, Eerie Emigre, all those ones that cost two are singles but swap me and tunnels oh charm offensive is a single as well yeah kyle Mm -hmm. i think that's a good point also i have of note if you're playing the exiles and partisans deck and you're looking for a set it and forget it crafting strategy um two rabbit crafters obviously it's going to get you the coins or whatever but two rabbit crafters will allow you to craft 19 of the 45 craftable cards and that includes the five bird wild craftable cards like saboteurs boat builders and corvid planners okay all those cost wild crafters so that you could add those five to any suit but um there's just a lot of rabbit uh craftable cards in those first two levels in the exiles and partisans deck are we and factoring cost in this too like by on average are some suits cheaper than others kyle's nodding his head what are you i'm have? so glad you asked <laughs> yes uh mouse tends to be the most inexpensive and fox tends to be the most expensive okay yeah rabbit kind of s- splits the difference protoss terran zerg rule of three got it okay 
Uh, Cole Worley, developer and designer of Root, famously a, a big StarCraft nut. Uh, oh, really? Has played like th- apparently has played like thousands of games of StarCraft yeah. uh, based on an interview uh, soon after the initial release of Root. Yeah, for those of you who don't know StarCraft, I'll put a link to StarCraft in the description. <laughs> uh, who doesn't know StarCraft? <laughs> so that's cards. That's quite a deep dive in a general Ooh. way. I, I, I didn't even – I'm glad you guys brought it up this way, though, because I never really conceptualized them by having themes within their suit and – when you first start start describing, I'm like, this feels lore oriented, but like it's really just as oriented towards the strategic theme as well. Uh, that's given me way too much to consider. So thanks for that problem. <laughs> <laughs> it's a yeah, it's a good blend. It's a good blend. Uh, so let's let's close out the podcast talking about the dice. Let's get into yeah. the math world, right? Let's push oh, those I... glasses a little further up the bridge of your nose, and let's look at some. No, charts, the dice are tables. cool. No, hey, the dice I are. The, I say that the motorcycle of root. <laughs> <laughs> All right, this is where we get to like roll dice and kill things. I say that as a nerd, so I am very much thinking this is cool. But uh, we're gonna start getting into <laughs> ratios and percentages here, so buckle up. Well, first, before we get into the nitty gritty, put on I do your helmet. To... I guess. <laughs> Before we get into the nitty gritty, I do want to say that I think the combat system in Root is so good. It's so slick and fast and clean. Yeah. It is just the attacker rolls two dice. They get the higher one. You're capped at the number of warriors you got. And it just seems like just such a simple, fair system. Now, it's not fair when you roll a zero, zero. <laughs> but but um, it, I just love it. it. As opposed to other games with like lots of cards that are played or multiple rounds of dice rolling with every single unit getting a different die and hitting on a different number, this is just clean, simple, and so fast. And for those of you purists out there who are going to balk at Sam saying that dice rolling can be fair, what we're saying is, you know, <laughs> it's uh, it's fair for everybody coming into the dice roll, depending if they're the attacker or defender, but it also is part of the game. It's the random part of the game. I think it's, besides drawing cards, like one of the only random parts of the game, right? It determines a lot. Yeah. I would say the card draw feels more random than the dice. I I, I think that the dice are just so well mitigated by you're capped by your number of warriors. So you're never going to have a situation where one warrior takes out three guys unless, you know, there's other abilities going on, in right. which case they've earned it, you know. And because the dice have a finite amount of options, which is four different results on each die and you're rolling two of them, there are a finite amount of uh, results total, whereas there's a lot of different result possibilities in a 54 card deck. Right. Mm-hmm. I understand. Well, uh, so what do you love about it? Why is it so? I mean, I know why it's so slick because it's over very quickly, and it just <laughs> we can resolve and keep moving because yeah. we don't have to count hits, assign this, yeah. mitigate for armor, uh, roll a defensive dodge. It's, yeah. yeah, and the numbers are low, you know, as opposed to yeah. like a d twenty or even a d six. Like the numbers range from zero to three, mm-hmm. and so the it, it's always really like quick to assess the outcome of a roll, and because that number is very much in harmony with the rest of the like rule of three and four going on with roots, um, 
it's it's awesome because rolling a three three will usually elicit some response from the table. <laughs> you know, it's it really feels dramatic, even though the numbers are super low. Notably by right? the and other two factions, zero, zero. not in the fight, right? Because they're very excited to see a lot of destruction from the others. They're often happy to see their opponents uh, tangled up with each other yeah. and not coming after them. Yeah, but yeah, it's it feels fun and exciting and dramatic um, for the most part. The main thing to consider with the dice is that because of this arrangement where the attacker gets the higher roll, that sets up some rather unintuitive outcomes. So the attacker is going to have the advantage uh, always, unless you're attacking the Woodland Alliance. Um, the weird thing about attacking is that you're going to roll a three about 40% of the time. Like, Four out of ten times, you're going to roll a three as the attacker. One of the dice is going to be a three. The, yeah, the percentage of that comes from the fact that you're rolling two of them, and you will always get one of them. Uh, one of those threes as a result if a, if at least one three is rolled, right? Because right. you right. take the higher. Okay. And what the, what this does, kind of psychologically during the game, is it it gives the flavor of like fortune favors the bold. Mm -hmm. You know, going out and attacking your opponent you are outlaying an action during your turn. You are risking some troops. You are, you know, reaching out and attacking. Uh, and the, the game kind of tilts the way the dice work to encourage that, to encourage that type of interaction and kind of warfare. Uh, so I think that this very simple dice system is <laughs> yeah. super satisfying. I mean, that it, it, it lends to the goal of the game that the designers had, which is for these woodland creatures to fight. So if you're incentivized to fight, then go do it. Like, not enough games do that. I mean, as again, we'll bring back up Wonderful Twilight Imperium, a game that usually takes about five hours for the first combats to start really happening. <laughs> and then another five yeah, hours right. can pass until the next one. So it's nice that from the get-go, like, you want to go be aggressive and kind of have to be. Yes. Also, a good comparison there is that you roll the same dice when you're attacking or defending in Twilight Imperium, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's yeah, like the very... unit is just as good on attack, whereas, like, what Kyle, I, I like what you're saying here, Kyle. This game has incentivized us to go out and grab people by the collars and shake them, as opposed to, well, I, it, it would cost me an action, so why don't you just attack me on your turn? That'll be better for me. <laughs> Right. The way I like to think about it is that the rarest outcome for a roll in root is that both dice are even and equal. It it definitely encourages a bit of uh, a tilt one way or the other. Usually as an attacker, you're going to be dealing one more hit than the defender. That's kind of the metric that I keep in my head. Yeah. If I'm going to go out and attack, uh, just kind of be prepared for it to be the attacker deals one more hit than the defender deals. I mean, that would always be true unless they roll an equal amount. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Right? And that's why rolling an equal amount is like, it's the rarest outcome. Right. So that's, yeah, that's why I have that metric in my oh, head. Oh, I like that. Yeah. The other thing to consider too is that defenders will deal two hits only a quarter of the time. So it, the most likely outcome, if you want to just reduce it to a die roll, the one I, I keep in mind, you know how it's like a, a seven on a, a two D6 yeah, yeah. is the most common outcome. The most common outcome for the root dice is like two one. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I have a little Nav. okay. Yeah, a friendly uh, hint from our friend Nevikaneza in the Discord says that the rule of thumb with battles is it you'll roll two one. 
Having more dis- uh, defenders isn't nearly as impactful as reducing the number of attackers. Okay? So it's usually worth it to risk a battle preemptively if you can reduce their warrior count below three. Meaning that you really want the attacking force that's going to come at you to be less, so preemptively attacking them is a way to <laughs> mitigate it even further. Yeah, yeah. So this fortune favors the bold is kind of going back to Kyle saying, right. because you have the advantage when you are in the attacking position, so take it then for when you're going to, because you're preparing for when you're going to be in the defensive position. Right. Uh, and this brings us right back to the very beginning when we were talking about warrior thresholds. This is why having three warriors is such an important threshold, is the dice. And... Uh, and to, to speak to that approach, it's like reducing your opponent's warrior count below three uh, can save you in a tight situation. When you said defenders will deal two damage only 25% of the time, that includes three damage, right? Provided yeah. they have three defenders. Okay. Right. Which What's the percentage of that? Like 10% or even less? One out of 16 will okay. be a 3-3. Three, three. One out of 16. Interesting. Right, because there's 16 potential outcomes. And that's a 3-3 outcome, isn't it? Because the attacker would have got the yep. other three. Right. That's an even outcome, so it's super rare. So, yeah, that that's the kind of rundown with the dice. I know it's like a little mathy well, or whatever. The, but it, <laughs> and I, I don't know. I'm not a math expert. And, Kyle, you're a chess guy, so you probably know this a little bit better. But here's my question. if Is 2-1 truly average? Because the reason five, a 7 is average on a 2-D6 is because different outcomes are on different dice will reach that multiple times where it's six, one, three, right. four, five, two. But this is these averages aren't added up. A three and a zero does not average to a two and a one. Even though the numbers are technically the same. That's not how they that works. And that's why I like to kind of keep it in my head that the the true average here is that attackers will deal one more hit than a defender. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On average. That's like kind of the most standard outcome. Even if that could be a one zero, that could be a two one, that could be a three two. There's a lot of different ways you can add up to that. Yeah, I feel like because I feel like the two one thing is misleading in that it's true because that's the average amount of hits that might be dealt in a battle, but it's not necessarily the average roll. Right, right, yeah, and because things can be capped by warriors, and then obviously Mm -hmm. any Mm -hmm. faction specific stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, the die roll isn't everything that needs to be considered. Anyone who's played against the commander leader. Uh, of the eerie will understand that <laughs> those dice can be augmented in scary ways. The commander does what? He deal. Uh, the commander uh, leader of the eerie dynasties deals an extra hit in every battle as the attacker, uh, which can make it very good for like getting down against the woodland alliance, or if they've crafted something like brutal tactics, which gets them an additional hit. Now they are. They have two free hits on top of whatever That's they roll. Bananas, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, those extra hits do lower that threshold to where you can attack with two birds and deal three hits. Uh, the, the nice thing with the commander that I love to do is send one guy into a clearing with a bunch of opponent's warriors and just do a battle. <laughs> if you lose the guy, that's totally fine. But you're just taking the opponent's warrior count and dropping it. Yeah. You know, kind of like that that strategic approach of limiting your opponent's ability to attack you. give you. one warrior all the weapons in your armory and you're like, okay, you do what you need to. Do <laughs> Go out there. You, can. Uh, you, you know, it's crazy. For such a simple system, there's so many things to consider. And I, I like your point about it, Sam. It is pretty clean. It's very quick, but it's still, uh, it still requires a lot of uh, strategic knowledge to kind of optimize, even within, you know, a game of, of random chance in a lot of ways. 
Yeah. I would say if you are wanting to focus on the dice and learn your lessons the hard way, the Eerie <laughs> Dynasties will teach you to respect the role. Um, given that you have to battle before you build, everyone has probably had that moment where they battled and then the battle went away that they weren't really ready for. And now I don't have enough warriors to rule this clearing and I can't build and I'm going into turmoil. <laughs> um, that, that'll happen. And, and so it's important to understand the dice so that you don't end up in a situation like that or, or understanding the deck and knowing an ambush could be played. So maybe you want to bring some extra warriors just in case. Going back to kind of what we said at the beginning, the three warrior threshold is an optimal os option, right? Because it allows you to deal the most amount of hits that can be rolled on a die as, as a defender, potentially. And it also prevents any buildings you have there from being destroyed in one battle, provided there aren't any special circumstances. Right. Now, I saw some discussion going on on our Discord channel, the Woodland War Machine channel on the uh, Good Time Society Discord about if someone's going to come in and probably do two battles, should you just have two warriors there? Because odds are they're not going to be able to get through your building in one battle, and that way you save yourself the extra warrior that they would have destroyed on that second battle anyway. Some interesting <laughs> discussion that I can't recommend uh, to a new player or anything like that, but kind of knowing when you can get away with what and knowing that that person's coming in, if, if it's the moles and they've got two battles anyway, maybe that three warrior threshold isn't as important in that specific instance. I don't understand that. So wait, okay, because yeah. you know that two fights are going to happen there, it's right. better to just have two because you would take more warrior hits knowing that there's going to be multiple battles on average, right? Right. If you're going to get cleaned out, you might as well not. But how do you plan for that? You, I mean, when you can see the moles have a two battle lord or you know yeah. minister. That's one example though, but like, the Eerie has two cards into battle. Right, okay, the Eerie, sure. All right. You know, um, mm -hmm. or if the river folk have a bunch of funds. If you if you know that you're the one taking the heat and sure. they're coming for something, I could If you know that you're the one taking the heat and they're coming for something, you're gonna D up hard. You're not gonna go, Well, I better do two to save one somewhere, right? That's my question. It depends. It, depends it really that. depends. How precious your buildings slash tokens are to your faction. Mm -hmm. Like the Corvids, for example, because they score points with their tokens, yep. they they'd they'd triple up for sure on a face down token. But I, I don't know. I think there's there's actually a great strategic imperative and route, which is like you got to go out and bot people in order to win, and the people who just turtle uh, are actually l likelier to lose in the end, just because of the way that the game is designed. It's designed for you to try and go on the front foot and seize the initiative rather than uh try and like withstand three players pummeling you yeah. i just feel like we, we the way we've discussed this too is that warriors are not worth the same as our cardboard so we we were willing to sacrifice them for our cardboard this is a, a kind of a hyper optimization approach in my opinion because like sometimes that one warrior can really make the difference mm -hmm. if it's in a different clearing yeah. Uh, it kind of yeah, depends. Sure. <laughs> I mean, that it kind of depends is the T-shirt that we need for this podcast. Again, yeah, that's the, <laughs> the mantra here today. Um, but in, in terms of all the global components that come with your box of root or uh, survival bag of root, um, <laughs> these are these are them, and this is how they work in a kind of specifically general way. <laughs> and 
you know, the next time you take your faction into a game of Root, uh, I'm hoping that you'll do it with a little more kind of specific knowledge in mind, you know? Uh, or should you put that crafting piece in a rabbit clearing? Like, maybe you go for a mouse next time. Um, just, yeah, being a little more intentional because of, of your knowledge about these root components hopefully will make the difference in the next game. I mean, this, yeah, this opened up my eyes a lot, and I knew largely what we were going to talk about. Like, <laughs> I didn't I, I didn't even conceptualize the way you guys have themed the, well, you haven't themed the suits, the way you've noticed the theme of the suits and how that can apply to a larger strategy. That's pretty amazing. Uh, yeah, great. Any other Any other component thoughts before we call it a day? Oh, they're just so pretty. They're just so pretty, these components. And uh, I appreciate everyone uh, for their contributions uh, this week on our Discord. I want to give a shout out to uh, Nebuchadnezzar, Marcus the Cat, Justin K, and Garrick S., uh, and just 10, everyone has been, uh, so awesome about giving their thoughts and stuff. And usually before we record these episodes, I'm going to ask a question, just like, is there anything that we should touch on on this given subject? And so feel free to join the discord or, uh, email us at, uh, woodland war machine at gmail.com. Oh, you got a Gmail account. That's right. Yeah. That's awesome. Thank you for showing me some new things, despite me thinking I already knew all this stuff. This is crazy. <laughs> like, my brain is... Uh, I told you I was going to blow your mind. Yeah, too. you did. You did. Like, when you started when you started counting out all the cards, I was like, here we go. And then... Uh, you thought it was a conspiracy, but now, Jake, <laughs> it's a rule of three. You agree, right? <laughs> you agree? Yeah, yeah, yeah yes. I, I agree with you. I will not Thank dissent. You. See, I think I'm in the rule of four camp. Oh, wow. All right, let, listeners, let us know. Are you a, a rule of three or a rule of four person? Because <laughs> there's four dominance cards and four corners. And technically yeah, four Three of those players. dominance cards work one way and one of them works another way. Four slots in the decree. I think I'm a four I'm of the camp that you're both suffering from confirmation bias. <laughs> <laughs> you can find these patterns wherever you want. You're a human being and that's what we do. We find patterns where we want <laughs> Uh, well, uh, this has been a very fantastic and eye-opening episode. I'm excited to play the game now. In fact, I really want to go play and apply all the things I learned, but we don't have time. Instead, we're going to call the podcast here, but next week we're going to return with our first deep dive into one of the many factions of Root. I think we're going to start off with the Marquis de Cat. Why not? Why, Why not? not? The, in the, cats. the invading ruler of the forest. The f it's time to get specific, people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we're leaping out of the general realm. And we're getting getting into it with specifics. And so we're going to we're going to create our best. Is, is it a faction guide, Sam? Is it our best take on how to play these guys or what is it? I, I'm just going to be totally uh, transparent with the listeners right now. I'm going to do my best to be like, you can listen to this episode and improve your Marquise de Cat game. Like, everything to consider, the cards you need. Now, every I can't tell you how to play every given situation, but I'm going to try. <laughs> yeah, we're going to go deep. If you've decided in that in your next game with your play group, you're going to be the Marquise de Cat, listening to our guide will hopefully uh, turn your game from okay to amazing. Okay, well, 
I always prefer an amazing game because I'm just okay with the cats. So I'm excited to listen <laughs> to you guys talk about this. Uh, thank you both so much for joining me. Thank you, listeners, for listening. Uh, this has been Woodland War Machine. We are a product of Good Time Society. Check us out on Patreon. Come join our Discord for the conversation. See our awesome stuff on YouTube and Twitch. And we'll see you right here next week for another episode. Bye-bye. Root. 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 Root.